Actually, Bob, we've talked about this. I know, I know. But each guest has to be aware of you know, idiocy. So they don't get scared? <laughs> yeah, they're like, what did I walk myself into? I'm walking out the door or I'm jumping through the big picture window. I can't figure out which one will get me out faster. Right? Oh, don't break the glass. That's what the guest is thinking. <laughs> I go to the door. All right. Hello, everybody. I hope everybody was okay with the bi-weekly episodes. I know everybody missed me last Friday, but here we are, summertime. And we have good weather. It's uh, like 70 degrees, a little breeze today, nothing too warm. But it is perfect outside. It is like a, a good spring day in Rochester, right? I know. Hallelujah. Amen. So how are you, Bob? I'm fantastic. Anything good this weekend? Uh, yes. If you saw my little blog on Facebook, I went for a little trek on a portion of the Finger Lakes Trail and close to Letchworth. Great hike. Now, I did see some kind of close sign. You didn't jump ropes oh, again, I wanted you? to. I wanted to so badly. But I have figured because the weather that we've been having lately with the amount of water and rain that the trail could have been easily destroyed in some way. And it being so close to the river gorge, I didn't want to take that risk. I wanted... To, I, you know me, I'm rebellious. I will do what's not supposed to be done, but I figured our safety was a little bit better if we did not go on that trail. Holy smokes, you're growing up a little bit. I know. It took only 50 years. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad you guys enjoyed the weekend. I was down at my aunt's house down in the lake a little bit. We had, we had more maintenance repairs, like typical lake house oh, stuff, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but it still was a good day. I got to spend some time with my cousins and my aunt. Did so you get on the water? I did get on the water, correct, and in the water with my wetsuit, yes. That I was, was a little good. bit of a wimp that I didn't want to go No look the from the ant saying, what are you doing? Why aren't you working? Oh, I got a couple looks, but right. I was pretty right. productive down there, so okay. she couldn't yell at me too much, yeah. But thanks for asking, Bob. You're I'm welcome. so glad you remember. <laughs> All right, we have a good deck guest today. I promised a lot of people that I probably would say less than 10 words today, which everybody knows that's impossible. All right. But we have a guest that's definitely going to take up most of this episode. As everybody knows, I like to introduce how I've met this person. So I originally heard this person's name through a former guest. I believe he mentioned it on this show, Steve Vandermeil, who is, has a CBD company, and he also is on the board for Rock Normal. We had him on a couple weeks ago. You can go back to look at listen to that episode. Uh, he had mentioned Dr. Harold Smith, and then I was fortunate enough the week after to listen to him talk at a cannabis event, the one when I talked to you about Bob with the Chamber of Commerce put together with Mayor Duffy and another organization, and they put on several panels for everybody to kind of talk about legislation in the state and some things that we should all think about as the legislation's been been written, being written. Um, and, and it was amazing to me that Dr. Smith was there, and then I, I was a speechless. And, and right afterwards, I got to meet him. And the best part, of Dr. Smith, isn't that he's from U of R and has done all this incredible things. Medically, but he's a skier. Oh. Oh, yeah. And he had the leather coat on that day. And I said, this guy's a soulful guy. Like, I could tell already. Um, so it was a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Smith. And I welcome you to our show. Sir. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, so for those of you who've never seen a picture of Dr. Smith, I'd say the face kind of looks like Santa Claus, but the body is definitely, he's got that, that fit body to him. He doesn't have a Santa Claus body, though, folks. So, so that would be my best comparison for you guys who don't have video. Three days after I joined the University of Rochester, someone plastered a picture 
of Dusty Hill from ZZ Top on my door. So if that gives oh, you any feel yeah, for what I look like. I can yeah. see that. Perfect. Thank you for that. That is actually <laughs> yeah. perfect. Yeah. All right, so Dr. Smith, the first thing I like to do, I'm so, I, I always listen to personal stories, and you had told a personal story a couple times with me now, and I'd love this. First of all, how is your mother doing? Your, your mother's an older woman, I think around my grandmother's age, and I know there's a big change in her life recently, so I'd love to love yeah. the open with that if you Well, don't thanks for asking about that. She is uh, 91 years old. Uh, she's uh, an immigrant into this country from Europe, part of the post-World War II kind of thing, and uh, she's a widow. Um, she... Uh, like most people who are getting old, I think that uh, if you have older parents, you know that there's a lot of physical things, but then there's also um, appetite suppression as you get old. You can't taste as much. And if you don't eat well, you don't take care of your body, you not only start wasting away, but you, your mind starts responding to that new body state. And uh, I went through about, uh, well, it's a long time with her, but the past five years were pretty intense where... She decided that she couldn't cope anymore, and, and her solution was to try to ask her scientist son how she could commit suicide. And, uh, and that really, you know, I'm the only child. And that's a stressful conversation to have a couple times a week. And uh, I've tried to introduce her to various, you know, techniques to uh, keep your mind active, keep busy. But really, finally, I said, you know, it's... Uh, Appetite stimulation is one of the things that the cannabis plant can bring you. And you don't have to have THC to have that effect. The other cannabinoids can do that. And um, it took two years, really, of introducing the concept. And finally, she said, well, if you send me something, I will try it. And um, I said, okay, so stop just a minute. I want you to ask yourself, why are you trying it now? I know why I want you to try it, but what would you look for in a change in your life? And she wrote down a couple of things. And so we went on, and uh, in six weeks, she was cooking three meals a day from going to every other day eating, if you can imagine that. So she had a change. And it didn't take much longer than that. Then she had a positive attitude about all sorts of things, including downsizing the house, selling it, going to independent living, getting rid of her car, just deciding how she's going to live the rest of her life. She actually said to me this weekend that she's happy. So she takes 50 migs of CBD, full spectrum extract, uh, sublingual under your tongue um, every day. And... Um, we tried to see if uh, an accelerated dose more often or more concentrated would help, and then she started feeling tired. So she started putting the cannabis dosing towards the evening time, and now she sleeps through the night. She has a full appetite. She's fully engaged. The other day she went off the coast of uh, Connecticut on a boat trip. You know, And this is someone who, if we weren't careful, would have ended her life. So I can't tell you as a scientist why that worked. You know, I know that there's this appetite thing going on. No, no one really completely understands the cannabis plant now. And, but I saw it work. And um, we're doing daily dosing. And so thank you for asking about her. I think I, I'm relieved that I can continue doing the things in my life and not worry about that phone call someday. And my grandmother struggles mightily from arthritis. So, so we've tried some topical lotions for her and I, I brought tinctures to her that seem to help at times as well. Mm -hmm. uh, she calls it Uncle Arthur. But luckily my grandma's always been positive, never got down too of a negative road other than the fact that it's her own personal frustration that she'll take out on other people a little bit that she's frustrated she can't do the things she used to be able to do with her hands. Uh, but, but 
I think my grandmother's a little more stubborn than your mother because she had. I know she hasn't tried the doses just consistently to see that difference in her. Um, but you know, it's one of the that. What do you say? You can bring a horse to water, you can't make them drink. Right. Uh, well, I but, think I think what made what made the the turning point for her is that I'm her healthcare proxy, and after really we go back now 10 or 20 years where doctors were meeting with her in a kind of a zip zop meeting in the office this is what you need to take make another appointment i'll see you in a while and then i learned that she didn't understand what she was doing or what was being prescribed or why it was so i started i became the healthcare proxy and i started now coaching her on what did this mean what was he saying when he said that and in, in, in three situations, I've caught uh, dosing that was off for her or the failure to put something into her dose regimen. So I think it kind of conditioned her. She saw I was right <laughs> a few times. You know, mom's always going to be critical and you're never going to get away from that. But That's a very fair way to put it. Sometimes they have to see where you're right to say, okay, now I'm believing you. Guess what? I'm signing my own checks. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing. So you obviously haven't been in, uh, not obviously, not obviously to other people, but you haven't been in the cannabis industry very long. You, I'm curious to how you got brought into the cannabis event. But before that, I kind of want to give people a background. You, you've been up, brought up through the University of Rochester and you have several degrees. Please tell everybody your background a little bit so that they can understand mm-hmm. where you come from. Well, the beginning, not going too far back, is I'm an army brat. And my father served in uh, at the end of World War II, and that's where he met my mother in Austria. And then he was stationed in Bavaria, and I was born in Bavaria. And then we transferred to Frankfurt, and that's where we lived. Every two years, we moved to another housing project in Frankfurt. And, um, you know, I came to the States when I was 12 and, and started the school system from that point on and then went to college to Purdue, got two degrees there, and then... Uh, uh, decided that I wanted to be a card-carrying molecular biologist, so a gene jockey, understanding how genes work and how I can control that to divert disease. And so I went to SUNY Buffalo, got two degrees from there, and uh, decided that it was time to go um, for my postdoc, and I left for Houston, Texas, which is like the Emerald City. If you've ever been down to the medical center in Houston, it's like your you jaw drops. There's nothing but cranes building skyscrapers. You know, it's... Uh, and that was an excellent experience. Worked in the Howard Hughes Institute there for a medical institute for a while and then took my faculty position in 1986 at the University of Rochester. So that's kind of the career you know, envelope there. Um, I, I work in an area that's gene editing. Many people have started hearing about things like CRISPR and gene editing. That's the new boy on the block. I predate that with gene editing and what I did. And I kind of led my field of at one time, I think it was in um, 1994, there were 50 of us, and now there's over 400 people who are principal investigators in this area. So 400 people in that 400 in this specific area of gene editing for the, way, the world. way we do it, yeah. And so I'm one of those scientists, and I'm considered an opinion leader. So people call me up and ask me how things work and what do I think about stuff and to write reviews and things. So I do research. So basically the research that in this gene editing field, started out in cancer, gravitated towards uh, looking at type 2 diabetes, obesity-induced diabetes, and those kind of things, and all the problems that go wrong with your your, uh, lipids, cholesterols, and things like that. And that was really the forte. That drove me through the promotion and ranks in the University of Rochester. 
And while I was doing that, I realized that my approach to things as a, as a gene editor was to try to understand the problem at the level of how two molecules come together and how they touch one another. And why was that important for the disease? And then I trumped those into a new situation where I could only look at them playing against one another. And then we try to figure out the parts, right? So we're really like Lego blocks at the level of molecules and pulling pieces off, putting this on, taking this off and, and figuring out disease mechanisms. And I realized I do this day in and day out to figure out diabetes, uh, hypercholesterol. Uh, and then I turned into HIV AIDS because that was the, the path that this was all leading to. And um, right now uh, I have another company called Oyogen that's here in Rochester. And we're about a year away from filing an investigational new drug with the FDA uh, on a brand new way of approaching HIV. And we think that it has curative potential because it takes advantage of a natural defense your body has against HIV. And we learned that the first thing HIV does when it infects you is it takes down that defense and now it can do what it wants. And so we said, wait a minute, how does that takedown happen? What's the grip? And so we figured that out. And so that brought me into a pharmacological you know, drug discovery arena where you, people are saying, in order for this to be a real drug, you have to prove this, you have to prove that, you have to prove you know, 10 steps to, to get there. Okay, so meanwhile, the cannabis conversation is coming on. And I hear people talk about, hey, I've got this stuff. It's uh, 500 milligrams in this bottle of CBD. Someone says, well, I've got stuff that's 500 milligrams of CBD in a full-spectrum product. And another person says, oh, no, no, my bottle's 500 milligrams of cannabinoids. And I just slapped my forehead and I said, my gosh, there's no conversation here that's real. This is, doesn't deal with dosing. It doesn't deal with the critical chemical composition of the product. How would I ever know how to choose a product and for what purpose? So I said, wait a minute. What I do every single day is that as a scientist. So I saw a need and decided to step off my path and fill a need. And I developed Canometrics as a, my second company, whose whole goal is to be able to say to people, this product will be consistent for you because it is dose dependent. So dose matters in a human cell, whether it's liver, lung, or whatever you're looking at, or white blood cells, uh, along a particular pathway in the cell that we associate with certain diseases or health phenomenon. So this product has been validated at a bar that's much higher than anything else. And if your product had that uh, level of validation, the testing, in other words, um, it would differentiate itself in the marketplace because instead of looking at those three bottles with different labels that are maybe even the same stuff, who knows? That's right. It just depends how it's extracted, right? Right. So, uh, and so uh, this is a way of actually saying this product has a certain characteristic to it. And every time I make that product, that characteristic has to be the mark. If I fall short of the mark, you don't let it out. You don't have the customer come back and tell you this stuff is no good. I didn't, you know, I'm not taking it anymore because it doesn't seem to work for me anymore. Why is the industry allowing this situation where if it ain't any good, it's your fault for buying it? You know, why is that the way the industry is moving forward? So we have to have some kind of credibility that we're behind our products and that we've gone that extra step to make sure that, People know what they're taking and that the product will be the same, that doctors can look at and say, well, this product has a higher level of a scientific endorsement. So I feel more comfortable in moving in that direction if you're choosing to go to a cannabinoid type of treatment. 
So I saw that, and that's why Canometrics came about, because I figured, how can I know all this stuff and just sit on the sideline? That's right. Now, let's talk about the foundation you're building, Blocks. Was there some watershed moments of your career before you got into the, the cannabis side of it, like that really built you as a, as a scientist and, and um, how you, you gained your perspective on and being one of those 400 individuals? I'm very curious how you, you became one of those 400 individuals. What, were you born like that, or was it something that mm. you, you know where I'm going? How do you know that? I was completely unremarkable as a kid. <laughs> I wouldn't have hired myself. <laughs> you know, and so there's a turning point in people's life. For me, it happened in my sophomore year. And, uh, you know, there's no short selling this. It coincided with meeting the right person in my life. So you end up having a different purpose when you're two than if you're one. And, um, and very supportive, very independent person, very intellectual person, very dedicated to values and things like that. So it, was, it just was one of those things that, like, why was I so lucky? You know, and so that happened at Purdue University and it turned the corner and I went from kind of a person who didn't really a smart guy, quick, but not really focused. I was kind of all over the place on stuff and uh, and really not determined very well. And I had just had a crash anyway in, in the situation where I thought I was going to go to vet school. And it re- all of a sudden it dawned on me that you have to actually work hard enough to get to vet school. You can't just be smart. You have to prove it to someone else, right? <laughs> yeah, through grades and everything. Yeah, <laughs> like that kind of trivial stuff. And so basically did a full breaks on, screech, and then take a hard left. You know, and that's what happened about my sophomore year. And then I became deliberate and determined and believed in rigor and critical thinking. And science is a place where there are absolute, there's an absolute need to question everything and to approach things from a standpoint of, if this is true, then this should also be true. Mm -hmm. And if that's not true, then you have to come back to your original hypothesis and question everything. So you, you come out with something in the literature, a scientific publication, in an important area like diabetes or HIV, and you're a crackpot, it's not going to last very long for a career. So I've, I've got over 141 peer-reviewed publications in top journals and led a field because I would see something and say, you know what, if you move this over to the side, put a couple of gears here and a few wheels, it'll roll. And everyone would say, what, what? And I say, no, 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 really, I see it. I can see that. So my aptitude is in three-dimensional thinking. I see problems in their structure. And so I can almost like on my mind's computer screen, turn it upside down and say, well, there's the hole in the bottom right there. And so that's my entry point into science. I'm conceptual in my thinking. So you, so you use visualization? Yeah, all the time. I actually, if someone were to listen to this afterwards, you realize that many times I speak in metaphors because my concepts are blocks of, of images linked together. I try to do the same thing sometimes when I'm going to describe myself because my words get caught up. I can talk too fast. So mm-hmm. you're right. I love, I love the way you do it, though, because it helps yeah. me understand what you're explaining very easily. So science has that need for you to actually think deeply about stuff. Now, if you don't know many facts in, in the reading and the literature and keeping yourself up, then you don't have a context in which to have new information come to you and, and you have, don't have that epiphany because you don't have any place to put it. But at that sophomore year, turning point, I became an avid reader. I mean, the back of my car, the, the tank on the toilet, every place had photocopies of scientific papers. I was just devouring 
the literature and accelerating to the point where someone said, hey, you know, this is this. And I go, oh, and you know what? Yesterday it just came out in publication. So you're going, how, do you, how would you know that? How would you know that? Well, I read all the journals. I just, and so I kind of got to the point where I had a context. And now when someone spins something at me, all sorts of file cabinets open up immediately and it's in a context. And I say, well, okay, so I think you need to go here in this problem. And it sounds like arrogance that you're absolutely sure. And I say, no, I'm not absolutely sure. I'm just saying this is the, ex this is the point in the experiment that you need to enter because everything else has too much confusion. So in the cannabis world, I said, I think the point that we're at is no one knows how much to take of what for what purpose? And there's a lot of anecdotes, like my mother's case. I can't explain that as a scientist, but I'm damn well going to figure it out. All right, and that's how I look at that. Now that I see that, I know that I can try to figure those things out. And I see the ability to dedicate a thought process to saying not just CBD. I mean, that's the, that's the bad dog on the block now because we can talk safely about it and not use the T word for THC. But... To actually dwell on CBD when there's 110 cannabinoids in a plant and all these terpenes and everything else, knowing that someone's taking all that in it simultaneously, let's say 180 chemistries minimally coming in at you simultaneously, your body's not just an empty bucket that that drops in and also in your brain turns on. Every cell in your body is talking through your neurological and your immune system. We are in constant cross-checking throughout our whole lives. And, and every waking hour and sleeping hour, we are cross-checking ourselves for how things are going. And uh, in comes all this chemistry. And that would be one thing if it was a totally foreign situation. But as it turns out, since mammals crawled out of the ocean, if you believe in evolution, if you don't, whenever God created man, that creational point the endocannabinoid system was part of the building block that was considered essential to put into place to create the being. And we go forwards, not just with an endocannabinoid system, but let's open the lid on that box a little bit more. What is that? That system is a method of producing cannabinoids and a method for responding to it. So it's a signal and a receiver that we're sending to ourselves internally every single waking moment of our life and while we're asleep now I, the plan comes in quickly? yeah i want you to keep going with that thought but i want to put this out there for the people to think about why is this system the least studied in the medical or, or am i wrong and it's and it's more studied than i know but when i talk to doctors it seems like this is the least studied system for doctors and nurses through their medical training am i right or wrong it's true and it's not true okay here's where it's true the cannabis plant has been studied for years, millennia. But science, the way we do it nowadays, that's able to get right down and scrutinize a molecule within you know, your cell, a sequence of DNA, that technology is kind of from the 50s when DNA was discovered until now. It's just accelerated. So we have things to do that, that we can do and figure out and see the invisible, if you will, that wasn't there before. So cannabis studies um, were focused on the issue of THC, and the government was focused on understanding how that works with people. 
but the molecular biology, so to speak, was not part of that. Now, it is being done now, and some countries are accelerating others. So that's the part where, no, that's not true. We actually have been studying. The part that's kind of elusive is that this endocannabinoid system that has the receivers, those receivers are, part, are molecules, and they have parallels in other things. So, example, one of the key receptors for THC and is, is uh, the, the re, uh, set, re signal receptor called CB1. And people will talk around CB1 and THC reacting with them. What that really means is there's, a, there's an open palm sticking off the top of the cell, and THC is like a fist that goes into that palm. And then there's a squeeze down, and when that squeeze happens, it goes all the way through the arm into the chest, which in this case is the cell, and the cell goes, oh my gosh, there's a knock at the door. And the cell changes what it does because it understands what that knock is going to be. Many other hormones in our body work through very similar looking types of receptors. Now the receptors bind to certain molecules because they're, they're built that way to only fit. It's like you can't fill, fit a triangle into a, a circle, right? So they're built to only receive certain things. But the fundamental structure of this CB1 receptor is called a G protein coupled receptor. And that's the most abundantly coded protein in the body of a mammal. We are just reacting to everything that's out there through these signal pathways in, in the cell. So we know a lot about CB1 and CB2 without studying them because we know a lot about G-protein coupled receptors and ion channels. It's a family member. We understand how the family works. And it was just recently in the past few years that both CB1 and CB2 as the receptors for cannabinoids were crystallized so we can actually see it as a three-dimensional space as a structure. So now everyone's going, if we could really specifically study cannabinoids and their signaling pathways in cells, we need to do that because that'll tell us whether it's CBD, CBN, whatever it is that we need to follow it, or whether it's it's not one receptor but two working in synergy that make the difference, or one amping up and the other one amping down and the proper balance between those two is constitutes your balance in your metabolism in life so you need two cannabinoids in order to function this way what i, I see happen a lot and I, this is sometimes with physicians and some of these physicians are the key consultants for the major cannabinoid investors and things like that they say, oh, yeah, we know about the cannabinoid system. That's in your body. We know that. So what are you talking about? And I'm saying you have a system in your body that makes, actually makes cannabinoids, releases them from the cell, interacts with them through a signal molecule, and changes your metabolism. And that's going on every single day like ants crawling over the top of a mound. And one day you dump a bucket of water on top of the anthill. You think nothing happens? That bucket of water is a toke or a gummy bear, or something like that. You cannot introduce that full-spectrum product and think that your body goes, oh, okay, go ahead and bind to one of the receptors. Nothing matters. It's okay. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. No, your body responds, and it pulls back. It pulls forwards. It does all sorts of things. You jerk your body all over the place when you dump that stuff in. And the good news is most of the jerk is beneficial because we're living a life of making cannabinoids. If someone wanted to make something illegal, they should make the human body illegal. I love that line. Say that again. <laughs> if someone wanted to make something illegal in cannabis, they should make the human body illegal because we make cannabinoids 
every single day. Now, not as much as the plant. The plants are called phytocannabinoids, 110, my gosh. All right, and all the plants' genes, that's why you should be able to select for strains of cannabinoids that make certain amounts of these cannabinoids and terpenes because the plants have genes that code for the enzymes that make these compounds. We do too. We don't make nearly, we make a fraction of the cannabinoids, but our cannabinoids, while they look different in chemistry, if you drew the carbons and the nitrogens, into, you'd say, oh, those are very different. How could those be cannabinoids? Then you allow those chemistries to fold in three-dimensional space in solution in your body, and you see that they embrace the same structure as one another, very similar, with a little bit here and a little bit different there, and that's why they're all a little bit different. That's why they can bind to the same receptors as plant cannabinoids and endocannabinoids, and that's why you know you cannot dump in plant cannabinoids and have your body still produce endocannabinoids, as they're called, or go along its merry way signaling if nothing's happened. We don't understand that relationship between the drug, the plant, and the body producing its own cannabinoids. And that's, that's going to be the crux by which we understand which cannabinoids are serving what purpose in what cell in which tissue in your body. It has to get to that level. Let's talk a little bit about what research has been done in the U.S. Cannabinoids. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe there's just one institution that's done THC testing in the U.S. Is that is that correct? No, it's more than that because the federal government has, um, and, and this is NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, and it's interesting that that's where the 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 tax dollars are. Taxpayers into the federal government federal government partitioning how that money is going to go. They give it into different institutions within the National Institute of Health, Institutes of Health, and each institute supports a cause, research internally and extramurally around the country and and elsewhere. And so NIDA actually has as a mission statement now, just now, um, and when I say now, I mean like in the past three years, to understand cannabinoids in different contexts. And so as a research scientist in the United States, we are beginning to find the money for individual labs to kick loose to do it. Um, so there are there's very strong stu- I mean, Israel has a lot of studies going on. Canada has been working feverishly now that, you know, in, in the United States without sounding uh, nationalistic or egotistical, we are a powerhouse in science. People come to the United States to study because they actually want to get access to resources and smart people who can train them. And yet we are way, 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 way behind anyone else in the world in studying cannabinoids, their effects and stuff like that. So um, it's now going to be in everyone's face, so to speak, that it's around and people will be taking it. Doctors will have to understand dosing of different medicines and say, are you taking cannabis? And understand what do you want to know when you ask that question? Because you think you know something about cannabis that the drug-drug interaction might take place? We need to learn that kind of stuff. And the, the uh, FDA and, and the National Institutes of Health understand this now. Even though they cannot federally endorse it, and a university such as mine at the University of Rochester or any others who rely so highly on federal grants 
And it's not just that I get a grant and it funds my work. So I fund my, my part of my salary, 70% of my salary, everyone who works for me, all the overhead, all the infrastructure, the reagents, the resources. I have to buy the equipment. I have to pay for the publications and pay for my meetings. All that comes out of a federal grant. If I ask for $100, the university tax on top of that and ask for 52 more. So that's overhead. So the universities live on that overhead. Imagine if I get one grant, I get 52% more, so $52,000. Another grant comes in, another $52,000. That's, that's you can see how that builds up if you have mm -hmm. thousands of people getting NIH grants. But imagine each person getting multiple grants and each one of those medical-related grants being worth $1.5 to $3 million a year. That overhead racks up and you start relying on that source of money now that now you do something that it federally is illegal no one can jeopard i mean that's be insane you'd have put so much at risk if you you didn't so that's why thc specifically thc studies or or in general the cannabis plant has been it's been off limits it's been kind of like what are you trying to do to the rest of us almost kind of respond no, no one's has said it that way you can tell that that's like wait a minute we gotta be, gotta be responsible in what we do now I could study cocaine and heroin and, and cannabis, but in each case, my lab has to have the security and, and certification that I am working with a Schedule One substance. And that, where does the money for that come from? To have cameras all up and, and, and contract with Brinks for security observation, have a 600-pound a safe in my lab. Oh, wait a minute, I need one in the cold room as well? And how do I know that my students won't actually find my cannabis very interesting in my lab? And so I have to record where it is, when it came in, where it's put, where it goes, and when, what I would do with it when it's done. This is a cost that most labs don't have the ability to upfront in order to get federal money to study. So I'm going to keep studying diabetes because I get funded for that, and, and no one questions why I'm studying it. So you see a lot of aversion of faculty and academic institutes going into an area that will potentially challenge it. I can tell you that if you walked up to a podium in a major scientific meeting and saying today's talk is on cannabis, you'd have everyone smiling at you. They wonder whether you were high right now. You know, and so it's just like, no, I'm telling you, I'm coming at this from a different angle, guys. Trust me, it's yeah. real. It'll be an Austin Powers We're not Powers talking about moment. joints here back when the day when you guys were all Woodstock before you oh became scientists. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Right? So, you know, you, you have to be careful. Um, That's great. Students are very interested in this as a career opportunity. Medical students are not being trained on cannabis. And yet all of them now, I can tell you by just talking to a first-year class, they're all, they realize this is out there. People are taking it. We don't know what it's doing. And this is all about medicine and care for, for people, health care. When are we going to hear more about this? And the simple answer is we can give you something, but we don't know anything. You know, we really need to know more before we can put connect the dots in medical school or even... I, I guess the risk would be endorsing the use of... Uh, medicinal hemp or marijuana and not being fully aware of the of clinical data that would su suggest absolute safety no off target no untoward effects you know you last thing you need is for someone to have, have an anxiety a, attack or something a, a major thing or, or actually be in a genetic situation where it overdosed them for some reason they decided that 
they had to take massive quantities and who knew that they couldn't and then they're dead and then the next thing is like oh my gosh there goes the entire we do not want that to happen no one in medicine wants that to happen and so there's kind of a a tendency to do an easy gozer you know let's try to get the data in let's try to think about it give me a few moments to check whether it's right and and society hasn't waited we've got the largest uncontrolled clinical trial going on on the globe right now and doctors and uh any, nobody, nobody can stop this. And, and so we have to get in a little bit more in front of it and, and actually say, you know, let's figure out the science. Let's figure out the medicine. Right, there's so many different angles I want to take. First of all, is there certain studies that if someone's listening to this episode right now and they wanted to go see studies that are out there now, you, you mentioned Israel, you mentioned Canada. Is there a spot where people could go to find studies on their own just real quick? Well, you know, the uh, GW Pharmaceutical got approval from the FDA for uh, classes of, cannabinoids that can treat rare forms of epilepsy and until that act got together families were selling their homes and moving to colorado so that they could get access to charlotte's web all right now that has a certain composition of thc and cbd and and that's just right for kids um but until that happens nationally, you know, we want to have that happen in Rochester. We want to try to co-opt the effort here in Rochester so that growers, producers, and research scientists and clinicians are all in step and stride in this. We know what our strains are good for, and we know what we need to do as the next gen for making strains that are good for other things. And that's, that's, I think, what the group of us are trying to do. We're not trying, there's some people who probably just want to come in and make money and sell things. There's many of us that I've been talking to and the consulting I'm doing with people are saying, how do we get our head around this and actually learn from other people's mistakes, other states, come out with a better idea, reform marijuana laws, uh, understand uh, labeling, package labeling. There's no package inserts on anything. No one knows what studies have been done. Uh, there's no, you know, this has been tested. Oh, thank God. You know, what does that really mean? That's and right. So, yeah, so we're, we're trying to get together COAs, on COAs, right? So making other people understand the certificate of authenticity on products, right? right. That's what you're just talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. the next time you get your product, you're going to have metrics, hence the word canometrics, by which to gauge, oh, wait a minute, my product is not the same as it was last time, but the box looks a lot alike last time. Yeah, but the product inside is different. Why? because the labeling is current with the product production that came off the line. And that labeling basically says more than just chemical testing. Chemical testing is an inference, okay? In all pharmaceutical industry, chemical purity is absolutely essential for a drug to move forwards and go into market, eventually go into people. App chemical purity, no doubt. But what people fail to realize is that every drug is brought forwards with another component, and that is biological testing. So it's like a hand in glove. I know the chemistries, and now I actually see those chemistries in response in a human cell, so I know how well it's working there. I know it didn't kill the cell. I know a lot of stuff now from actually touching biology with chemistry. And that's the name of my product now. It has this composition, it has this effect, and that is the name of my product. Every time I make this product, it's gotta be right on that line. Anything short of that does not go to the customer. Consistency, that is gonna make it so this industry moves forward successfully, right? Credibility is important for compliance. 
compliance is important for people to stay with products long enough to realize effect. And people could easily judge the quality of a product based on its THC content. I mean, you don't have a lot of give and take there. It either does or it does not get you high and it gets you high to different extents. CBD is not that way. You can take boatloads of CBD and most people will have trouble immediately afterwards saying, you know, do I really feel different? I'm not really sure. CBD and the other cannabinoids create a tone in your body that takes time to wiggle into position because of the endocannabinoid system. Um, so, so that's one, one part of it is that how do you actually assess that CBD or other cannabinoid activities? You have to ask cells that have genetically engineered reporters in them to report out to you as to how they responded to the dose of this product. And that's what Canometrics does. It engineers these cells to be reporters on potency. Um, so uh, a little bit here, the difference between a CB1 and CB2 receptor for people. Um, so as you know, all right. So the the focus on CB one and CB two are those. This most is known about those receptors. Um, conservatively, there's probably eighty different receptors. So those for those of you keeping score, one hundred and ten cannabinoids, sixty or so terpenes, eighty different receptors. Many of them are the G-protein coupled receptors. Some are not. Some are glycine receptors. Some are ion channels. And it's just this, this plethora of signal, you know, receptor wires sticking on the outside of the cell. And they're all being touched like sensitive hairs. And when those touch in a concert, it's not like hitting the note C. You know, bang, 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 bang on a single piano key. It's like hammering with two hands and two chords at the same time. No, not even that. It's the entire orchestra playing the first note. And that's what the endocannabinoid system does. It is an orchestration of an entire response happening so quick and simultaneously, you're almost unaware of which direction it came from. Right? And that's so CB1 and CB2, really well studied. Crystals, literally purified protein that are concentrated to where they form a crystal like you'd see sugar or salt crystals like mm -hmm. that form. And now I can look at that at the level of... A, a hydrogen atom and say you're next to here you're folded over this way oh when thc binds you fold out so look there's a change right there and people can begin studying the changes and from those you say are those changes important what if i prevent that change from happening does it prevent this and so that's how scientists build the lego blocks to the pieces to understand where things are going and then you say wait a minute that didn't happen in this disease so you know, is that receptor still important? And if it turns out the signaling pathway is still happening, but that receptor is knocked out or not functioning well, then you go, is there another receptor that's important? Oh my gosh, this is going doing an end around and it's hitting a different receptor. And maybe that's the way this disease works. And so this is how the scientific story is put together. It's these aha moments and the tragedy of, of you were wrong and you have to come, ah, that didn't work that way. Well, what else can we do? And so, you know, you brainstorm and you come at the problem relentlessly and with every skill that you have and all your intellectual capability and say, okay, so let's put aside everything we assume. Let's assume something different. Why would that be wrong? Let's try that experiment, see if it works. And there's a little bit of suck and see you know, in terms of what this science is about, but it's not without context of deep knowledge of what are the possible ways that could be around. 
So how uh, University of Rochester, 1986, I got to go back to this. Mm-hmm. Um, now that is the biggest employer in Rochester. Mm-hmm. In 1986, it wasn't. So, so tell us a little bit about University of Rochester. It's, it's a place I fully respect. My mother died of cancer and I spent a lot of time at the Galasano Cancer Center there mm-hmm. and I have nothing but respect for that whole compound. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're talking about Strong Hospital, University of Rochester. Describe how you've seen it change from 86 to now a little bit. Mm-hmm. Change change subject a little bit. Well, it, it evolved with the practices that are considered standard of care that are driven by new knowledge in clinical science and basic research science. So from the time that I came in to the University of Rochester, uh, a lot of things have changed. I mean, uh, if anyone's listening and has a science background, I came to the University of Rochester before PCR was discovered. Polymerase chain reaction, PCR, Carrie Mollis got a Nobel Prize for it. Uh, enabled people to make visible DNA that was un- invisible. And then we learned that if you can make DNA, you can make it in different ways. You can actually design it the way you want it to be. And so PCR opened up the whole door. All of a sudden, diagnostics, are you, do you, did you inherit a mutation in a gene, became zip. You could just do that in no time, less than four hours, and you'd have an answer. So the molecular diagnostics, the genetics, the advancements in, in oral or, or injectable medicines, the, the advancements in vaccines. You know, Gardasil is a University of Rochester thing for uh, a papillomavirus, a cervical carcinoma. Uh, and so all these kind of efforts and colleagues who are doing research would be one thing that would be amazing. But to have that next to a medical facility where the translation component is literally five minutes down the hallway gives the uh, system the ability to actually cross-check itself and say, are we going in the right direction? How are we doing? Uh, Does this really happen in people? Because the rats seem to say it's happening. So what happens next in people that's writing clinical trial protocols? So I've seen an evolution that is driven by changes in the caliber and the sophistication of science that we can do, the kind of questions we can ask. It's an, it really, when you get into it, it's really, oh my gosh, we can do that. And, uh, and then when it's applied in a medical field, in disease areas, studying muscles, studying brains, studying your immune system, people dedicated to find out how things work, like the G-protein coupled receptors, are not just CB1 or CB2, but now people are looking at receptors that are responsible for cancer and things like that. And that whole thing evolves next to people who are interested in changing people's health care. That's what I've seen happen. And, um, you know, I, I came to Rochester because I saw interpersonal reactions during my interview that were quite positive and collegial. People were interested in what I could do. They were wondering whether I'd be interested in doing that in what they do. And so this cross-hybridization of technique and capability. I'd say that the other thing that, that draws me, and it's something that in retirement I would, I'm trying to figure out how I'm ever going to do without, is teaching. I've taught pre-meds, medical students, residents, postdocs, graduate students, junior faculty members, 
it's just it's a natural step for me to actually say okay so hey what's happening and then they tell me what's happened i say hey you know this is what's happening eventually conversations go to uh, how do i know more can learn more about that and and that's something that you affect people's lives with in the immediate day after day you affect people's lives and uh, your research then puts a mark on the unknown that changes the way we think about things which has if you're lucky in your lifetime the potential of changing people's lives so i'm glad that i'm a research phd because the things that i do i feel will put ideas pathways drugs whatever into place that has such general application that it's not just the person I can shake hands with that I affect. It's the many, many unknowns that I will be able to affect by enhancing the knowledge in humanity. That's a hard one to walk away from, right? That's, and so... Um, so Because uh, yeah, you never know when that string or that conversation one person, that string's going to save or, or help or, or where it's going to go. And yet you, you have to be humble because you don't do your research to get a Nobel Prize. That is ridiculous. You basically got to focus on more tangible goals and design your experiments to achieve measurable steps. And, uh, and one day, if you're lucky, uh, it'll all come together and it'll tell a story and you'll get a great research paper and you'll talk to colleagues at national meetings and things like that. And uh, people will say, wow, you are really all over the place, aren't you? How did you figure that out? And, uh, and that's an interesting dinner conversation, right? And uh, students come to you and they want more of that. Every second, even when you sleep, do you, do you dream science? <laughs> I mean, I know you're, you're not probably someone that has a favorite sports team. You're, I, I know you ski. Are there other I, hobbies? I, I, or I, I watch the Olympics both summer and winter relentlessly. Uh, I, um, I do watch kickboxing because two of my kids were, are black belts in taekwondo so i do watch that um you know it's a it's a funny story but <clears throat> i've been teaching for a long time and i was in purdue's veterinary school and my charge as the only ta for 400 students if you can imagine that right wow. was yeah, to big. was to set up all the chemical reagents for every laboratory that they did Right. And so I walked into the chemistry room and I looked at the walls and the walls were, if you can imagine, almost two stories wall that is 20 feet wide with various sizes, brown and plastic bottles with chemistry labels on them. And I looked at that and I went, they're not in alphabetical order. Who, who was in this room last? How did this chaos happen? And I've got to find sodium chloride. Where is it? You know, and so I decide, OK, no. I'm going to organize this. And that's kind of the German in me. And so I organized this entire chemical stock inventory. And my wife's, the dreaming in science, my wife was saying I was talking in my sleep. And I didn't wake up, but I told her, don't worry, it's all in alphabetical order. <laughs> so I know I have a malaise. It's, it's an addiction to science. Um, I hope that in my lifetime I will prove that I've made good use of that. But um, Oh, there's no doubt. Yeah. All right, so we talked about diabetes and the HIV. So how is it? how and why did you end up at the Cannabis event to speak on a panel 
as uh, a, a leader mm-hmm. of conversation about cannabis mm-hmm. uh, and you are on the panel and maybe you can name the other panels you were on with so, so you can kind of paint the picture. How, how and why did you become a part of that event? Um, you know, I was not politically active for most of my academic career. And when I got into the HIV AIDS research area, this is one where home offices and politically active patients have actually made possible many of the drugs that are now available that are allowing people to live you know, close to normal lives. And the reason for that is that they, were, they went to the government, they went to scientists, and they said, we need this to stop. We've got to get step the game up. And if you work in HIV AIDS, you have to actually address um, the needs of patients more directly, even if you're a basic scientist. And that's not so true with diabetes or any other disease. While you could, it's not in your face. It's not immediate. At meetings, the front row are HIV treatment activists, you know. So I began speaking to them and realizing that they have political questions and needs, and I would help represent them by posing the science part in those conversations. Um, I was facilitated uh, by a fellow named David Miller, who's an ex-military guy, really knows this community very well. And he said, Harold, you know, you're, you're perfect. Let me take you into the Congress and you speak to congressmen and you speak to senators and I want you to be there and talk that. And I thought, okay, well, you know, what's this going to be like? Uh Right. And it turned out that the receptivity was fairly high. And then the conversation emails would come back from people in the government. And then I started getting involved in New York state. So I think every assemblyman and Senator in this area knows who I am. Uh, Louis slaughter, definitely knew, and she wrote several letters thanking my lab for getting federal funding and bringing jobs to New York. So there was a, you know, she was very vested in microbiology. And so when she found that someone like myself was doing what I was doing, uh, there became more of a political uh, connection. Kathy Hochul, others like that have all been engaged. So that's what would start me into this understanding that there is a, another obligation than just reporting my science in journals and meetings, that there's a political obligation, there's an obligation to the people who are have a vested interest in treatment and, and other things like that. And so this event came because I became on first name basis with Bob Duffy and um, with various uh, assemble, assemblymen and uh, Harry Bronson for example, and um, I'm comfortable enough to say, and I'm not you know, pushing my agenda, but I'm comfortable enough to saying is, I think there's a new way of talking about this, and I just want to share that with you so you hear the words and how that goes, and if there's anything I can do, let me know. Now, the truth is, I've got a busy life, and I don't want to be running around in political circles, but what ended up happening is the call came through, and um, um, uh, Zach... Uh, Zakaris from uh, Flower City, uh, someone I've known for a while also in consulting, uh, said that Bob Duffy and he were going to try to put something together and they needed someone to address fundamentals in a way that was simpled, simplified down, but not false. And that's a real trick, making very complicated things simple enough for people without background to embrace and use, but not telling lies so that it's so simple that you know, you don't need to know the facts. Don't worry about that. 
and 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 I guess from teaching I have those skills. So that's how I got drawn into that conference. Um, Were you happy with the experience? I thought it was a great experience for everyone there because of its balance. I mean, the thing from everything from law enforcement and the problems they're facing to the clinical issues of why can doctors not prescribe? That was kind of my part there. But um, And you had another doctor on the panel with you who, if I'm not mistaken, runs... Uh, yeah, it was a from from one from Trillium and a fellow who was is a neurobiologist, a neuro neurologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of them was the Monroe County, uh, the who ran the Monroe County Doctors Association. I, I, I apologize, I don't have the yeah, title. Healthcare, yeah. healthcare, and uh, the other one runs a clinic, the largest cannabis clinic uh, in the country, yep. eight thousand patients or something. So they mm-hmm. had a good diversity on that panel. Yeah, good perspective, and you know there was a good give and take that the government, whether it's state or federal has its foot firmly placed on the brake on this because they do not want to say yes to something and have someone tomorrow come, oh my gosh, you just found this out. Oh, it's terrible. Now we have to pull it all back. So they want to absolutely have clear indications. Have you tested that? Have you measured that? When you say always, do you really mean always? You know, and so... Okay, so they have our six, so to speak, and many times we look at them as they're going to try to arrest us, they're going to ban this, they're going to prevent me from access. It's more of a confrontational thing, but I think if you look at the medicine side, while they are impeding the progress that's happening naturally and cannot be stopped, um, they're actually asking for a moment of contemplation. Let's just think about this and, and agree that we go forwards, we go forwards with the knowledge of why we are going forwards. Not only does this work, but why is it working? And when you know that, you could ask the question, are there circumstances where it could work better? Could it work for some people? Not at all. And what would we do for those folks? You know, and that's what science really brings to you, that caliber of differentiating within the population of what's good and, and how much is good. I know at the end, you, myself, and Bob Duffy were talking a little bit, and one of the things we mentioned, he mentioned specifically, was that there was no confrontation. It was even as people were putting stats out there, it was it was all everybody wanted to learn more, and that was very yeah. refreshing. That environment. Yeah, I thought it was. I don't know anything, and so I had no axe to grind. You know, that's how I felt about it. If there's something I know that you can use, I'm glad to share that because science is about sharing information as much as patenting is about not sharing and making money, which is the extension of discovery. Science itself is a very collegial thing. We compete with one another, but the universities are set up so that we transfer our reagents. The federal government expects scientists to have a little clause that's called reagent sharing. And if you discover something, you promise that if you get this grant, that you will share it with anyone else who asks you for it. Oh, and so that kind of attitude about things is not a business attitude. It's one of the earth is ours and we live on this together. I'm advancing science. I give you this knowledge. You will teach that to someone and they will learn something else that I don't even know. And so that's kind of that family of scientists that you have. While we're very competitive and we want the first position, you know, that's always true, but it's, a, it's kind of a sport event where there are rules of engagement. And uh, so I came to this like saying, there's going to be things I'm going to learn. There's going to be things that I don't even know I know. And there are going to be things that I can share that I'm pretty confident of. And so there's absolutely no downside to that. 
So it puts you more at ease and you don't get aggressive about recognize me as a scientist. You know, that's totally unnecessary. Yeah, yeah just me as a person. And what yeah, I I, if, you, if you have some question and, and if I, I have the skills to answer it, then that's a win for all of us today. Are you happy with the way New York, the way New York State's approaching everything right now, as far as the the licensing with the with the growing of the hemp and then the processing and the way they're handling it? Uh, how what's your opinion in general on that? Or do you have the only have you thing I worry yet? about is is how long it's taking to work through the tax issues. I think bottom line is New York knows there's going to be a lot of revenue, and there's a plus side to that, and there's a downside when you have that money. People are going to ask where did it go, mm-hmm. and. What's your answer to that? Yeah, that's that's a very valid question. Yeah. And is it going to valid products? Right? Yeah, and are, are you kicking it back in in such a way that people who were incarcerated, say, for minor possession, they're not just simply having their record expunged and saying, hey, go have a good day. I know we screwed up 30 years of your life. But some part of that money could go into STEM education. Maybe they could go into science. Maybe they could try to recover what's you know in their life still. And that kind of focus of how to use the money on education, facilitation, that's not taking someone who came out of prison on cannabis and saying, you know what, now you can open up your own cannabis shop. It's like saying the things that you got locked away and the life that you lost, now you can start selling. Uh, to me, that actually ground a little the wrong way. I thought, why don't, I, why don't you say, look, we're going to take those tax dollars We're going to find out what you really would like to do in your life. Oh, you don't know? Well, then we're going to give you an educational opportunity to figure out what are opportunities for you in your life. You like one of those? Now we're going to help you go back to school and we're going to facilitate. We're going to educate so that you have normal home, normal family life. That's the focus that that money could do so much for. You know, do you want to pave streets with it? Okay, I get that. that That's a necessity of infrastructure. But can the money on a product that's helping people, the tax dollars actually be used to further help people. I don't think there's an answer on that. And there's maybe some pullback on the government that's trying to figure out how much tax, where it's going to go, what would be legitimate concerns. Uh, the only example they can go to is probably the tobacco industry from how many years ago and where did that, can they track where that tobacco money went, right? That would be the only comparison similar. Yeah, there are a lot but- of people made a lot of money on tobacco. Um, but then when they started growing a conscience about it, uh, tobacco started funding research. And uh, the Tobacco Foundation funded a lot of research. I had a grant from them for a while. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's what would be nice is that everyone learns from the past and that as an industry, the cannabis industry doesn't have to wait till someone says, hey, you know, aren't you even embarrassed in how much money you're making? I mean, what, what, did, uh, what did an ounce used to cost? And look what you're charging for it nowadays. My gosh. I mean, and so now you're, you're, you were nobody yesterday, and now you're filthy rich. And so don't you have any feeling for where you sit in the population? That, and I think the argument is national now. How can you have a lot of money and not want to give to it? Why wouldn't you be associated with philanthropic activities if it actually causes you no pain to give that money away? So, you know, I think I'd like to see the cannabis industry actually come forwards as a community and, and look at things as social responsibility. I don't know if that's a word that's used very much. In, it's a great point, though, yeah. Yeah. Because within the industry, there is a little bit of 
uh, I believe there's a little bit of competition to the fact that it's so new that if someone comes up with a proprietary way to make something, Mm -hmm. they're not going to share that right now because they want to make the product that that, that lasts. So it's the catch-22. But if you're a company that gets this stuff right, hopefully you've also had the research behind it and and the development and the people so you become that company that's more well-rounded, like you're describing, right? And, and that technology, if it were shared um, through education, I think that's one of the uh, Flower City, Zach's efforts and, and, uh, and the things he's talking about uh, really come down to how do you create a, a, co-optive, a co-op educational facility where people can actually interface with experts, get an opinion, understand how things are going. That's a big piece. I, I think the two things are education and consistency of products. And, and I know you talk about potency. Yeah. And the, to me, those, that's and potency, the, yeah. That's going to be the most important yeah. in this industry. Are you excited about the industry in general? I think it's a great opportunity. I never thought after I left my college days that I would be coming back to it. And, uh, and so that's a, a very interesting thing. And as it turns out, because I'm doing a lot of straight talk, uh, People will come up to me and say, I don't understand this. Can you tell me what this is? And I'll explain it to them. They say, well, that doesn't help me at all. I said, well, that's because the product isn't labeled properly. So what should I do? All right. And I say, okay, first of all, I am not an MD. So you cannot use me as a doctor, as a resource. As a scientist, I can rationalize things like this. I can tell you what I would do, but I can't prescribe or recommend your healthcare issues. And they say, no, 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 I, I, what, would, what would you do? And I say, well, if I was doing it, I'd start at 50 milligrams of CBD, a full-spectrum product. I'd check my list and how I'm doing, and if in three weeks I don't feel any difference, I'd change the strain. If I, nothing happens there, I'd jack the dose, and if nothing happens, I'd go on vacation. Do something else. <laughs> you know, that's kind of like the, the experiment you need to do because there are really no other data out there to drive that. And if you're taking a, a five milligram CBD gummy bear, you might as well be brushing your teeth. You're not doing anything to your body. You have to actually have a significant whack on that endocannabinoid system for you to, of course, five milligrams of CBD or 0.5 are all going to do something to your body. But our perception of change, the way the human con- composition, the, our thought process, our perception of change, in order for us to take that CBD every single day religiously for three weeks while nothing is happening. We have to believe that something will happen. And if it doesn't happen in three weeks, you're going to start saying, well, you know, I forgot about it, but it's probably all right. So I, I recommended them, jack it up. Don't fool with the low-dose stuff. And that's exactly opposite of what other companies are saying. They say, start with a little bit, see how you do. Well, sure, if it's THC and you're going to get a buzz from it, you never had a buzz, yeah, you've got to be careful. But if it's CBD, what you, what's the deal? Great point. You know? I love it. So, Bob, Bob has been writing feverishly this whole episode. I know he's got to have some kind of question for Dr. Smith, and I haven't let him chime in, but but what do you got, Bob? You got something for... I've got for, like, lots of notes. I, it's just dilly-dally in here, but... The biggest question I've got to we're, we're please probably put it in the fact or fiction. Okay. All right. So uh, I've been dying to get this out in the open and, and, and more aware. Does CBD have a tolerance level? Uh, it's going to be like all other 
hormones or drugs that bind to the cell in a particular way. Everything develops a tolerance level. Is it a, uh, so, so will the tolerance, will you need to take more as you as you go along? Or I, I'm you... wagering yes. And if you sense a tolerance level, try not taking it for three days. Then come back to your normal dose. Everyone who does pot to get high knows this. You do it, you do it, you do it, you do it, and all of a sudden it's not that good, and then it's just not good. And did something go wrong with my pot? You have what's happened is THC is bound to that CB1 receptor, and the cell realizes there's a lot of THC noise out there. And the way it protects itself, the way it controls its response, is it sucks that receptor inside the cell where it can't be touched anymore. And then nothing happens, nothing happens. So now you've reached that point where the drug is not working at the dose you used to take it at. All drugs have a tendency to work that way. All hormones in your body have the tendency to work that way. The cells downregulate their ability to respond in order to set the tone. Then if you stop taking, what happens in those three days? The cells replenish those CB1 receptors on the surface again, and now they're twiggling on the outside wondering, is anything out there? When you take the dose in three days, whoo, boy, back to where we were, you know, and that's that is perceptible with THC, but it is not perceptible with CBD. But because it's a cannabinoid working on G-protein coupled receptors, it's going to behave the same way. The cells will downregulate. It won't work for a while. You might actually be better with every other day dosing. Okay. But I think the key word he said is we still are without that research. It, this is his anecdotal, right? Like No, she, we actually know the receptors okay, go well, down. Yeah, excellent. You, so you can, visually, oh, you can, you can visualize that. Mm -hmm. And it's been repeated through biology over and over again. I was talking to one investor and they said, yeah, as soon as you can prove receptors exist, then we'll be interested in knowing. I think, oh my gosh, I've just walked in the Flintstones or something <laughs> like that. It's really amazing. How much documentation did you get to send them on receptors? Yeah, oh my gosh, please. That is not a concept that has to be proven anymore. <laughs> um, but... But people. What do you do when you approach someone like that, though? That's that's it gets. Depends on whether I want their money or not. <laughs> it's it's not a productive conversation if people are are not willing to learn. There are people who have a vested interest in in knowing what they know and not knowing anymore, and that's a very difficult person to deal with because if you're a person who figures like everything you know is up for grabs, and anything new is just part of how you deal with life and you work it out. The other side of that person who's like a stone, it's not a conversation starting. When that person is put in charge of an investment fund, what are they, they planning not to spend money? Is that why they've got that person? So I've encountered some of those people and it's really, it's stressful, but um, I come back with educational material. That's it, you just, Bombard them with facts. Yeah. I've had a conversation locally, and the name I will not mention, but um, they were saying, is there any, there's no publications on the use of cannabinoids in post-traumatic stress syndrome or pain management for veterans? And I thought for a moment, I, I, I had gone deaf or something like that. It's just my brain just stopped, and I said, how could, wait a minute, that was a complete denial of what I just read this afternoon. Uh, so did I not read that? And I went, oh, no, no, no. Um, by the way, there's a thing called P-U-B-M-E-D, PubMed. The National Library of Medicine publishes everything that's research 
in PubMed. And if you look at that, it lists dozens and dozens and hundreds and thousands of papers going back to before photocopiers. And every single day, there's something on cannabis and post-traumatic stress syndrome and, and pain management and other things and re replenishment of, of, of substitution for opioids and things like that. How could you not know that? And I didn't say, how could you not know that? I said, let me send you the link to PubMed. And they said, oh, no, I look at it. I said, well, recently? <laughs> Anytime in the last 50 years? 50 years? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the point is to convert not to alienate. And so in a, in, and science has a tendency to freak people a bit. So you have to actually be patient in, in the, the rate at which people can take up information. All right, let's have a little fun here. Married, okay. married with kids, how many kids do you have? Three. Uh, all scientists, any of them? Mm, They're all science inclined. Uh, my youngest works for Nielsen Ratings. He's a business guy, he got his MBA from Simon and then his undergraduate in business from UPIT. So he, he's all over the place in math, and that's what he does. He analyzes market trends. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping to recruit him to the cannabis field sooner or later. Heck yeah. Uh, my daughter is uh, what I guess would be the simplest way is an assistant professor in Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. She's an environmental engineer, graduate of Cornell and uh, Berkeley. So uh, smart lady. She's probably one of the smartest people I know. Awesome. And yeah. she's your daughter. And, How and, lucky and, you, right? and my oldest son has just finished his, his PhD in uh, cardiovascular research. And uh, he's doing his postdoc. And actually, if we can fund Canometrics appropriately, he'll join me as the senior scientist because uh, his expertise is in receptors for hormones and things like that. So it'll be a family affair. We're already a family LLC. The Smith Family LLC. Oh, perfect. I, I own nothing. I've given it all away already. <laughs> you know, so that's, I'm free to dance now. I love it. That's all that matters. Yeah. Set it up, set it up for the kids. Yeah. Uh, so skiing, let's talk about skiing a little bit. We got to end this with my favorite subject. Are you a skier? How, how much have my you My uncles fought in World War II on the Russian front as the Germans recruited the Austrians as cannon fodder for that conflict. And they skied, dropped, shot, got up, skied, dropped, shot. That was the name of the game in those days. Like and the old biathlon? You got it. And so um, when they came back after the military, some of them became ski instructors. And so I was taught by Austrian ski instructors at four years old uh, how to ski. And I've been skiing ever since. And, of course, in Austria, it's, it's, it's largely alpine, um, highly technical skiing and always very fast. And so I taught all my kids how to ski, and uh, we're crazy on the slope. <laughs> Define crazy. Define crazy. I broke my leg in three places and went back skiing. Um, you know that's pretty, same day. No, no. But, <laughs> but I did ask the doctor uh, uh, whether he could fix me up and get me back on the slopes, and he he held my foot, and he said, "I've got your foot here." And I said, "Yeah." And then he let go, and it just fell flat to the side of the table. He says, "You broke your fibula in three places, buddy. You ain't going anywhere." And I said, "Oh, damn it! I already paid for my ticket." <laughs> you so, are my kind of skier. So, like, I, I love skiing, and it, it's it's a very refreshing, invigorating sport. And anyone who skis very vigorously and alpine skiing knows that at the end of the day you can feel the oxygenation in your lungs and i think that's always does it for me i've never put it that way but you're that's exactly how you feel at the yeah end. it's a high 
It is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. everybody wonders. My son and I have done where we'll drive to Gore overnight. You know, like I'll wake up at two in the morning or three in the morning, drive to Gore with him sleeping in the car. We ski Gore all day and drive home. And people are like, how can you do that? That's like seven sure. hours of driving for seven hours of skiing. But when you're driving home, I am never tired, yawning, mm-hmm. like I'm energized. Yeah. And I've kept the tradition. I've always skied Fisher. It's an Austrian brand. So I don't mean to plug Fisher skis, but I love them. They are so fast. So S- top speed. You ever been clocked? No, no. Fast though, probably, right? Well, yeah. Cook. We're, we're technical skiers. So most terrains that are basic downhill are navigated pretty fast. And then you only slow down when you're getting into highly technical terrains. And then it's a lot of cutting. But um, What's your favorite place to ski? Well, you know, because I'm so busy, I have to break off and go to Bristol, Bristol Mountain. And that's a good four-hour shot and then get back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, one of my favorite moments, I was in uh, Germany and we skied uh, a glacier in Dachstein, it's called. And in there, in those cases, now I was, I was approaching, I think I was 10 or 11, and the guy was driving around in a tractor pulling a trailer that had tractor seats with animal fur on them, and you could just simply drive up to this trailer and hump up onto the tractor seat and order a schnapps. And so he's going all over the glacier driving this this cat tractor with a floating bar, so to speak. So I, I skied the glacier all morning long. I had actually one schnapps while I was 11, and that's permittable in Europe. So Of course. And then we went down in the massive train car gondola, and uh, my mother asked, uh, do you want to ski? And she was referring to water ski. And so I got on water skis, and I skied the afternoon on the water because it was a totally different temperature it was like i it's so impressionable that i will never forget that event in my life two types of skiing one day totally different temperatures totally different oxygen content you know it was just a buzz and isn't that what you do brian what is that called dual day yeah so dual day killington three weeks ago we did killington i snowboarded skied in the morning then we went to boston lake and i wakeboard and wake surfed in the afternoon oh my they, yeah. They've done it 21 years out of Lake George, and now next year you'll be going with me because uh-huh. i got to have you have that another experience of yeah, that. there you go. So there's these crazy guys, uh, the Dunleavy family out of um, the Lake George area. They started it in 1991. They'd come back from Killington after skiing, go, why don't we go water skiing today? And they've been doing it since 91, this brothers. And Lake George is beautiful, isn't it? Oh, yeah, that's where they started, but they realized Boston Lake's a little bit easier because what they would do is they actually, at one point in the 25 years they've been doing this, they were had a, people sitting on a, a floating platform in the middle of Lake George and the boat would come up and you'd pull someone off, pull someone off, and they'd have like 10 people on the swim platform and like 45, 50 degrees But winds. they didn't have a floating bar. No flow. Oh no, they, there was plenty of alcohol. No, yeah. there was. <laughs> I believe the cooler floated then. If I didn't, if I heard the stories right, but it's so funny that you told that story and didn't even know about my dual day. But yeah, right. How that day though? You were eleven when you did that. Yeah. And you still remember it like it happened yesterday. Don't you? I remember sitting in the restaurant at at the edge of the water and my mother pointing to the boats and saying, "Isn't that nice? How the water skis are going up and down?" I said, "Yeah, nice." But you know, she said, "Well, do you want to ski?" And so I walked up there and to the end of the dock and they paid the guy. So he said, I'll take you around for a run. He said, now you put your feet in both these skis. I said, I know. And I said, I took one ski and I set it aside. I said, I only need one ski. (laughs) And because what I did when I was working, you know, as a young kid, 
um, uh, part-time and things like that. I saved all my money up and I bought myself a, a Voight slalom ski, you know, hardwood, black leather straps on it. And the sucker had a fin on it that had holes in it. When you leaned all the way down, almost shoulder touching, it would look like the rays of a dinosaur coming out with large tubes and stuff like that. It was so hot to ski like that. <laughs> he says hot. Yeah. <laughs> You're the man. Yeah, thanks. So do you, do you still water ski now? I haven't had the opportunity. You know, there was a, when my parents retired in Massachusetts, they moved to Lancaster, Massachusetts, and they bought a small house on a lake. And then the next year, they bought a motorboat. And so with that motorboat, some kids want the keys to the car. I always wanted the keys to the boat. I would mow any lawn for the keys to the boat, uh-huh. right? And then my friend and I would just go water skiing all day, all day long, water skiing. That's just really unimaginable for me now. But And so when we moved away from that, I moved away from those opportunities, and so... I presume that it's like riding a bicycle. If I got back on, I could do it. But I can't wait. Uh, I'm going to put the offer to you now. I would love to have you come down to our family house and water ski with us this oh, summer. Thank you for that. No, that I would. Be- great. My, grand- my aunt, uh, who is basically my mother since my mother passed, has been water skiing every year, and she's 62. Oh, cool. Uh, and her first time skiing was like back in 16, 15 years old, and she... Honored my uncle by doing the full loop of Canisius Lake. So for those of you who don't know, Canisius Lake is eight miles long. My aunt actually at 17 years old went around the whole loop. And my, my uncle's buddies turned to him and said, she's a beast. You better marry that girl. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and she's still this year. She may not be able to because she had a knee surgery, but she, my aunt is a beast. She's been water skiing at least once a year since. Unbelievable. So, yeah, I would love to have you out. Thank you. And I know she would enjoy seeing you out there and having fun with us, too. So um, I'm about to wrap up this episode. Dr. Smith has been phenomenal. He has spent a lot of time with us. Bob, thank you very much for being here tonight. Uh, Dr. Smith, if you want to pass any information out to people who are just getting into the CBD world, this cannabis world, what advice would you give from a scientific perspective? I think there's a national resource that anyone can access online. You may not be able to download the articles for reading them because some of them journals charge money, but if you're within a university system, you usually have access to what I call PubMed, one word, PubMed, and you just have to do that. I mean, because if you can get in there, you you will see, put a keyword in there, put in, uh, THC and, and CBD, anything you want to have connected, you use the word and in the language, THC and CBD, and it'll just roll with scientific articles. What if you want to toxic side effects of, of THC? See if there's anything there. Uh, what Clinical trials on mar- medical marijuana, it'll just roll. This is the international place where all information is the go-to. I know things because I go there. You go there, you'll know those too. You may find a paper that you don't completely understand, then you call me, you know, and I might be able to interpret it or find someone who can. But that's really the starting point. It's about education, and education means access to information. Research gives us that information, and research is published in PubMed. That's where it all's going. So, you know, avail yourself of research, always ask questions, challenge the the retailers who are selling the products and saying, you know, what is the documentation on the purity, on the consistency of the product? Oh, it's this? What was it six months ago? What did that look like? 
or do you have consistency in your source? You know, and um, feel free to experiment. Amen to all that. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Smith. Thank Bob, you. thanks again. Justin, yep. to everybody here at Hempletic Podcast, enjoy the next couple of weeks. Please get out and enjoy the summertime. I'm not coming back next Friday. You get an extra week off from me and an extra week to listen to this great episode with Dr. Smith. Thank you very much. Oh, no problem. Have a good day, everybody, and enjoy the summertime. Yeah. Summer, summertime, summertime. <laughs>